0: John 12, we're going to read from verse 20 to 36, let's read the passage ahead of time and then we'll work our way through it verse by verse as we look this morning at the humble glory of the cross, the humble glory of the cross. Verse 20, now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast, Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. I think everybody here loves stories. I've never met a person who hates stories. But do you know it's interesting that Almost all of our stories, our folk tales, our epic poems, our fairy tales, our great literature, and indeed many of our modern movies, are very often the same basic idea. If you look closely, you'll find many of our stories have a basic idea of two ways of living life. Think about it. In our stories, the bad guy, the evil characters usually try to get their way through some kind of domination through power, cruelty, violence they grasp at power, they use trickery, violence and they climb the ladder of success or pleasure, power, fame, fortune, whatever you want but they do it through their own selfish way and then think about the heroes, the protagonists, the good characters are they not always the people who give themselves up for others? They accept some kind of sacrifice, some kind of heroic act, some bravery, some difficulty so as to rescue or help or save another. And if you think about it, in most of our stories, the bad guys, the antagonists, eventually fall as they climb that ladder of pride, while our heroes, the humble, are vindicated, redeemed. They have the happy ending because of their sacrifice. It's a curious thing because you'll find that theme almost everywhere in our fairy tales, in our movies, certainly in the ones that were made before postmodernism took over. Behind these stories lies a great principle of reality. I think the story writers are just writing something that's deeply known in our culture and in our hearts, and that is glory is either obtained selfishly through pride. Or sacrificially through humility. When I say glory, I mean success, happiness, fulfillment, pleasure, wealth. Whatever you want to put in that word, it's the beauty of the well-lived life. The flourishing of humanity. And you either get that flourishing, that beauty, that glory, through a selfish act of selfish grasping, or through humility. Christians believe The Bible teaches us that evil in our world has its origin in an angel. A created angel who wanted that glory in a selfish way. Evil glory, satanic glory, is all about grasping power. Gaining glory through domination. The story of the Bible is that evil grasps for independent life and lives and breathes pride, selfish ambition, envy. It fights for position. It jostles for fame. It expects honor to come from beating others. That's why life in the world is a world of grievous envy, competition, hatred, despair, looking for worldly accolades. But we also believe the Bible teaches us the opposite principle is the principle of love. In fact, we believe it's rooted in the triune God before He even made the world. Before God created anything There was a principle of self-giving within God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit giving of themselves to the other. God's glory is a glory of self-giving, sharing, overflowing in happiness. And now in a fallen world, that triune life of self-giving is the way of humility. That's what it looks like in a fallen world. In a cursed world, that kind of life looks like a life of self-surrender. A life of death before life, surrender before victory, going down to come up. That deep principle, friends, without which you cannot be a Christian, and without which you cannot understand the Christian life, that deep principle is uppermost in this passage here in John 12. Here we reach a great moment in Jesus' life where the reason for His coming, the cross, comes into view. Have you ever traveled down to the sea and you've spent hours and hours in the car and you're riding and you're riding and you're looking for that first moment of when you see the sea and you kind of go over the hill and you go that, no, no, it's just a town and you go over another, that, no, it's just another town and finally you come over and there it is, there's the ocean and, and you say, there it is, it's the sea and that coming into view is a moment where the, so the whole journey changes and so it is with Jesus in this moment He's lived as a man among men for 30 years, 30 some years. He's ministered for three and a half years. He's done all kinds of good. But now the great work of atonement has for the the time being been hidden beneath the horizon. And now in this moment it's as if he comes over the hill and the cross comes into view. And he sees the cross. And he sees it experientially. And as he looks at it. He now sees what it is, its point. God's glory through humility. He sees the upside down reality of the gospel. The great paradox of God's gospel in this world. Glory through suffering. Victory through death. Life through death. Exaltation through humiliation. And instead of grasping for glory as Satan did, Jesus accepts that the way Down is really the way up, the humble glory of the cross. You remember we saw last week that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, presenting Himself as King, King Messiah to the nation of Israel. And you remember that there were shouts, Hosanna, save now. For many people that meant military Messiah. Jesus, save us from Rome and Roman taxation. And save us from the humiliation of being a nation under another nation. Messiah, Son of David, come and save us. Conquer glory through domination. But in His first coming, Jesus is coming as Messiah, Son of Joseph. Suffering Messiah. Humble Messiah. Isaiah 53 Messiah. He's the Messiah who's going to go down... Before he comes up. But many in Jerusalem couldn't understand that. And many today, perhaps even some here today, have no category for humility in their understanding of life. They couldn't then, and many cannot now, understand or embrace the principle of the cross. Isn't it funny how often we read a story, we watch a movie, and we're cheering for the humble hero. So he's so humble, so beautiful. I hope he, hope he gets his vindication. And we see the proud hero and we're cheering for him to go down and to be defeated and humiliated. And so we cheer for the humble hero and we boo the proud antagonist. But isn't it strange that we're slow to do that in our own lives? You see, if life is a story and you're one of the characters, which one of the characters are you? Are you one of the humble ones, self-sacrificing, accepting the meaning of the cross? Or are you one of the ladder climbers in their power, in their domination, in their cruelty, making sure they get their own way in their own way? It's very important that we understand the meaning of the cross. So here the Lord Jesus is going to unpack for us one of the deepest realities of life by explaining what His upcoming death is about. The cross will be a paradox, the cross will be pain, and the cross will be power. Those three realities of true glory were true for Jesus, and they true for every follower of Jesus. They're true for us. So let's see those realities and listen closely to these very, very deep universal truths. Let's begin with the paradox of the cross in verse 10. 20 Jesus teaches this paradox from verse 20. We read now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee and asked him saying, "Sir, we wish to see Jesus." Philip came and told Andrew and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them saying, "The hour is come that the son of man should be glorified. Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone." But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. It's Passover, right? There's probably about 2.7 million pilgrims that have arrived in Jerusalem. Among them, interestingly, are some non-Jews, some Greeks. And these are not just Greek-speaking Jews. There were plenty of those Jews who lived outside of Israel, and their main language was Koine Greek, the common Greek. No, no, these are actually Gentiles. They're what's called God-fearers, a category of people in the first century who had not converted fully to the faith of Israel. There's a three-step process to be converted, and they hadn't done that. They weren't actually willing to do that. But they were drawn to the religion of Israel. Often they attended the synagogue every Sabbath. They tried to practice what they could of the law. And some of them would come up to the feasts and they, were, they would partake of what they could. Gentiles were not allowed to enter the main part of the temple precincts where Jewish men and women could go. They were only allowed in a section that was called the court of the Gentiles. In fact, the court of the Gentiles had a wall that was known as the wall of partition. There was even a sign on that wall that said, if any Gentile crosses this wall and goes over, he can be punishable by death. That's what Paul is referring to, by the way, in Ephesians 2, when he talks about Jesus has torn down the middle wall of partition and made us both one. We now have equal access to God. There's no wall keeping Gentiles out from worshipping the true God of Israel. So these Greeks come and they're at the feast and we read that they wanted to see Jesus. Maybe they'd heard when Jesus had cleansed the temple that Jesus had said something about this house will be a house of prayer for, do you remember, all nations. Maybe they heard that. Maybe they'd heard Jesus teaching from a distance. Because remember, He came to the temple every day. and Maybe they'd seen some of the crowds listening to Jesus' sermons. Whatever it was, the fame of Jesus had spread to some other nations. And now these Greeks want to see Jesus. Someone cleverly said, Wise men from the east came to the cradle, and now some wise men from the west came to the cross. So they approached the apostle who is probably most likely the guy they could connect with. He's the apostle that has a Greek name. He's the apostle that comes from Bethsaida, which is a town in Galilee with a lot of contact with Greco-Roman cities in the east, the Decapolis. And that's Philip. And so they approach Philip and they say, We want to see Jesus. As you read the Gospels, you find out that Philip seems to have some trouble with decision making. (laughs) So he refers this request to Andrew, Andrew has no trouble with decision making, like his brother. And they take it to Jesus. Jesus responds with a strange answer. In fact, we never find out if they had this interview with Jesus. I think they likely did, but we never find out if they actually met him. But Jesus responds in verse 23 with this strange answer. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. That's a strange way of answering. Why does He say that? Remember through the book of John, Jesus keeps saying, My hour has not come. Remember when Mary asked Him for a miracle? He said, Madam, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. In John 7 we read, No one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not come. Verse 30. John 8 verse 20 we read, No one laid hands on Him for His hour had not yet come. But now we read, The hour has come. In fact, the word for come in the Greek is put at the beginning of the sentence in the original language. And in Greek, that always means emphasis. In other words, the writer is saying, arrived has the hour. The time is now. So what is there in this request for an interview that sparks this response from Jesus? I like how Spurgeon answered. Listen to what he says. Surely the coming of a few Greeks to see him was not very much in the way of glorification. But to Him, the coming of these Greeks was a sort of prophecy of the myriads of other Gentiles who would by and by come to His feet. And He therefore looked forward to that death, which would be the means of their salvation. See, Jesus, as He sees these Greeks, He sees them seeking Him. And what does He see? It's the early buds of spring, the beginnings of what the cross is going to do. Millions of people from around the world are going to find the Jewish Messiah It's going to be glory, glory, but not the glory you expect. Not the glory we would think. It's not the glory of selfish ambition. It's not the glory of a violent conqueror. It's this paradox, the paradoxical glory of God. It's the glory that will come through the cross. So to explain this to his disciples, Jesus gives an illustration followed by an application and a promise. Look at the illustration. The illustration is there for us in verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Very simple. New life actually comes from death. A plant must go through all of its growing, budding, flowering phases until it finally dies and then drops its fruit or seeds to the ground. And those seeds, which appear to be nothing more than dead, useless shells, actually contain in them all what's needed for new life. But the catch is this. Seeds don't start growing while they're still on the plant. The death must be complete. The seed must drop to the ground as if it's discarded, as if it's useless. It must end up with some soil around it, buried as it were. Water lands on it, sunshine, and then the glorious process begins. Life from death. Jesus says a single seed that doesn't undergo a fall and a burial remains unfruitful. But if it dies, He says, it brings forth much fruit. In fact, I read someone calculated, if you plant one wheat seed, you take that crop and plant all the seed from that crop, and then you plant all the seed from the next crop, and so on and so on and so on, they've calculated it would only take 14 years for the entire land space of the earth to be filled with wheat. Such is the fruitfulness that's present from one seed. Now here's the application. That's the illustration. But here's the application of this paradox of death from life. Look what he says in verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I've shared with you before, this is actually the most repeated phrase of Jesus in the Gospels. It's repeated six times. Matthew 10, He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. 9 verse 24. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now let me explain something for our modern ears. This is what we call a Hebraism. Hebraism is a Hebrew saying. It's an idiom. And love-hate as a Hebrew idiom simply means prefer one over the other. Jacob, I have loved, Esau, I have hated. Doesn't mean God had malice towards Esau. It means Jacob is preferred over Esau. Jacob is selected. Jacob is chosen. It's not about malice. So now apply that to he who hates his life in this world. He doesn't mean despise your life. Doesn't mean live with this self loathing. Doesn't mean that. What does he mean this? He means if you prefer your independent life lived for this world, over a life lived for God's beauty, God's glory, and eternal life, then you are like that wheat kernel hanging onto the branch. You want this life and only this life. And you want it now. And you want it without humility. You don't want to give anything up. You don't want the submission, the sacrifice, the self-denial, even the suffering. No, I want to hang on to the branch. Jesus says if that's you, you will lose. Now, not just physically, that's no surprise to any of us. We all know we're going to physically die. Jesus means this, if you prefer hanging on to your life, if you refuse the paradox, ironically, the real meaning and joy and fullness of life will evade you. Your life will weaken and eventually perish physically. And then you will go on to face an eternity of your own making. An eternity of living in that same selfishness. With all the others who wanted to live in their selfishness. And there in that world, which none of us should want to go to, in that world it is always winter and never springtime. In that world no one wanted to die to self. So everyone lives in their own eternal death. It's not a world you want to go to. But Jesus says, if like me you surrender to God... You submit to God. You deny self, sacrifice. If you prefer eternity over this world, God's righteousness over self-righteousness, God's glory over self-glory, God over self, then you will keep your life for eternal life. That's how the paradox works. That's how he applies it. Notice though, he says, you've got to do this. You've got to copy this. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. He says, you've got to imitate this paradoxical principle. A servant is like his master. And if you are my servant, Jesus says, here's the logic. If you serve me, you follow me. If you follow me, you where I am. So where am I going to be? I'm going to be on the cross. So if you really are serving me and and you're following me, you must be where I am. You've got to embrace my posture. A servant of Jesus follows Jesus. He goes where Jesus goes. He does what Jesus does. A.W. Tozer said the problem with modern evangelicalism is we want Jesus to do all the dying. And we don't do any. And in fact, as Dave Hunt once said, we're actually more like Barabbas. We're saying, yeah, Jesus, take my place so I can go free and do my own thing. That's not what substitution means and it's not what it means for Jesus to die for us. Yes, He dies for us, but in a very real sense, then we die with Him so that we can have life. Remember in ancient battles, often the kings were known to sprint ahead of their men or to charge, to ride hard on their horses away from their army towards the enemy, exposing themselves to the greatest danger Showing the greatest bravery. And so the loyal men would then cry to the king. Why? Because the king was in danger. Protect the king. And if the king is throwing himself at the enemy, can we do any less? Where my servant is is where I am. Where I am, my servant will be. If the king accepts this humiliation, death to self, can we, his servants, do any less? But then see the promise. In case you say, this sounds bitter, this sounds cold, this sounds wintry. Look at the end of verse 26. What does it say? Here's the promise. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. You want glory? You want honor? The Father will not fail to honor the one who embraces the Calvary road. You want glory? You're going to do it the proud way? we are going to do it the Son's way? If you do it the Son's way, Jesus says, you will get honor. My Father will honor you. Do it your own way, and there's only death. This is the paradox of the cross. What goes down in God's kingdom comes up. What dies, lives. What surrenders, wins. What is defeated, finds victory. The paradox of the cross. But it's not all just interesting theology. There's also, sadly, pain. And we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the pain of the cross. Look at verse 27 as Jesus describes the pain. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven, saying, I've both glorified and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, the voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Here is pain. At this point, Jesus reports great grief and groaning in his soul as he begins to look towards the cross. Yeah, he's telling us, look, it's upside down. But that's not all it is. He is troubled. In fact, it's the same word that was used when Jesus was at Lazarus' tomb. Inward turmoil, inner distress, a sense of danger. He's going to speak this way again in the Garden of Gethsemane, where He's going to say to His disciples, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Once again, it's as if God the Father lovingly kept from the Son a full view of what the cross would be. But now as He kind of crests that hill and the cross comes into view, He begins to experience some of what He's going to experience in Gethsemane. His soul is troubled. I don't think He's troubled by the physical agony of the cross, though He's certainly not looking forward to that. I don't think He's really troubled by the persecution and rejection He will face, though that's also emotionally distressing. What's troubling Jesus is in this hour, this time, It's Him, the life and the light, accepting death and darkness. He who is the life is going to surrender His life as a covering for all whose sin had earned them death. He's going to take on our guilt, our smear, our mud, our defilement, our corruption. And He's going to wear it. And He's going to face physical death and spiritual death The greatest love of all between Father and Son and Holy Spirit is going to mysteriously experience some kind of severing beyond your and my reckoning. You say, explain it to me. You may as well explain a black hole. You may explain chaos. Explain utter, utter disorder. As Jesus will taste death for every man. But you see, unless He does this, there's no resurrection. Which means no life. No conquering of sin and death. If Jesus holds back, if He says, Father, do save me from this hour, He's like the corn of wheat hanging onto its branch, refusing to fall. If Jesus says no to the cross, then He says no to resurrection. He says no to glorifying God. And that wouldn't make sense, because Jesus came for this purpose. To die for sins. To defeat death and sin. To rise victorious and gain life and victory for His people and glory for God. Do you know you can think about the whole incarnation, the coming of Jesus, as steps down. He leaves heaven's glory, that's step one. And He takes on humanity, that's step two. Then He accepts the role of a servant, that's step three. Then He goes to the cross, that's step four. Then He endures the, the death of the cross, that's step five. One step after another of surrender, submission, sacrifice, going down, down, and down. Jesus' whole life was a life of not claiming His rights. Not insisting on His preferences. Not serving Himself. Not choosing His comforts. This is God in the flesh giving up His rights. And may I ask you, who has more rights than God? His whole life is the life of a servant. Sacrificing them for the glory of the Father, for the good of mankind. And this whole life, 33 years of small deaths, now comes to the great death. Because a few days later, Jesus will be in Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, as the full weight of Calvary begins to break in upon His consciousness. Some take verse 27 to mean that Jesus is actually asking rhetorically. In other words, He's saying, Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? And then he doesn't actually pray it. I think that misunderstands the text personally, even though it's someone's punctuated that way in our English translations. The question mark is not in the Greek. Um, I think that makes Jesus a bit histrionic, a little overdramatic. Shall I say this? No, I'm not going to say that. I think he's really praying this prayer. He's actually praying, Father, save me from this hour. Just as in Gethsemane, he's going to pray... Father, let this cup pass from me. But then just as in the garden, Jesus says, Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. So here Jesus follows it up with, Father, glorify your name. Jesus chooses the principle of humble glory. Father, glorify your name. You know, Spurgeon pointed out, whenever you're perplexed and you're wondering... If you should pray something is is it God's will that this child be healed is it this will that I take this job is it this will that is it your will that this occur you can't go wrong by praying father glorify your name you can't go wrong by adding those words to whatever you request and now in one of only 3 occasions in Jesus life Jesus hears the audible voice of the father the rabbis called this the bat Kol, which means the daughter of the voice. And the voice spoke at Jesus' baptism. It spoke at Jesus' transfiguration. And now in this moment, look what it says in verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I've both glorified it and will glorify it again. Interestingly, most of the people around Jesus only hear an indistinguishable sound like Thunder makes me wonder sometimes about what's actually going on when we hear thunder. But they just hear this indistinguishable sound, the faint shape of a voice. I'm reminded of when Saul of Tarsus was on the road and he hears Jesus Christ speak to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We read his companions heard a sound, but they could not understand anything. But Jesus clearly hears the Father saying, I've glorified it, that is I've enabled you through your ministry, and I will glorify it. I will see you through the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. This is assurance and promise. I've glorified it. I will enable you to finish. And friend, when you look at what the cross will be in your life, you look at the pain, you look at the sacrifice, the separation, the difficulties, and maybe you think this is going to be naked loss. Here you see the Father encouraging you. No, I will glorify myself through you. I will enable you. There's a promise. You're not alone. If you embrace the paradox of the cross and you accept the pain, that's not where it ends. There will be glory. C.S. Lewis once put it this way. He said, Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. And submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you've not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find Him and with Him everything else thrown in that's the deep principle you see the pain of the cross requires the assurance and comfort everything I take from you I will give back to you and hundredfold and so for our sakes as Jesus says the father's comfort was heard to show this is a reality God will exalt his son God will save the one who loses his selfish worldly life for Christ the pain Of the cross. And gladly, though, this is all for a great point, and that is thirdly the power of the cross. There's victory, there's achievement, there's something that this does. So this paradox and this pain leads to this power. Look at verse thirty-one. Now is the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus says, There's three victories coming from my humble crosswork. I'm going down to come up, and here's the up. Number one, he says, The earth, the, the world will be judged. The world thought it was sitting in judgment on Jesus, didn't it? They thought, Yeah, we've declared him guilty. But now the world is going to have the ultimate indictment on it. And what's that? The only righteous man who's ever lived, they put him to death, unfairly. And all the sins of the world are placed on him, and yet people repented not. And mankind's excuses for rejecting uh, God are silenced before a loving God sending His Son to save the world. The world is judged. Who's guilty? Not God. Second victory, he says, the ruler of this world is cast out. Who's that? Satan, the evil one. And this means that at the cross, Satan's power over the world is broken. You see, our family, as we've seen as we've gone through Genesis, we're born in bondage to sin and fear of death. Those two things are the prison cell that keeps us under Satan's control. We're born in sin, we live in sin, and we fear that we will die. And if you remove the fear of death, and if you promise to deliver from sin, A man is free. And so Satan is cast out from his place as the unchallenged ruler of this world. It's not that he's been cast out of the world itself, but he's cast out from being the unchallenged ruler because Christ reclaims a people for himself until the day his kingdom comes. Of course, I must hasten to say, though Satan is cast out, he's still dangerous. A few years ago they did some research about people who'd been bitten by dead snakes. And the reason they did this is that there was a patient who came in who'd been bitten by a snake while gardening. The man had cut off a rattlesnake's head with his shovel, and then he bent down to pick up the snake's head and it bit him. And research has shown that 15% of those admitted for snake bites were bitten by a dead snake. And that was a surprise because people didn't know dead snakes bite. But snakes actually have a reflex action that continues even after they've been killed. And for this reason, a a decapitated rattlesnake can still bite an hour after death. Well, the Bible calls Satan a serpent. And he's defeated. And he's been cast out of his throne. And there's a way in which he is almost being decapitated. But he's still dangerous. Still dangerous until the very last day. So he's cast out. And here's the third victory. The third victory is that all men are now drawn to Christ. Look in verse 32. And I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. That phrase, lifted up, includes his death. Because it says in verse 33, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. But John is very clever. It's a nice, ambiguous phrase. Because for Jesus to be lifted up means almost two things. One, He's lifted up when He's put on the cross, but also when He's raised. And When He's ascended, He'll be lifted up. It's glorification all in one package, humiliation and glorification. Jesus says, look, when this happens, I'm going to draw all people to Myself. No longer just Jews, but these Greeks who come to see Me, all people are going to be drawn to Me. Why? Because it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. It's when you know that God did not send His Son to condemn the world, but to save it. And the sight of a loving God on the cross draws men to Himself. Well, the last thing we see here is the crowd has no category for this suffering Messiah. They don't get the paradox, they don't get the pain, and they don't get the power. And they say, what are you talking about? Notice what they say in verse 34. We've heard from the Lord that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? They say, we don't know what you're talking about. According to what we read, of the increase of His government, there shall be no end. Right? Messiah is going to live forever. So who is the Son of Man? Is He someone else? Son of Man in Daniel? He receives a kingdom that lasts forever. Who are you talking about? You know what's interesting? Jesus doesn't respond to their question. What does he tell them? In verses 35 and 36, he says basically this. I've already shown you enough. You've seen the truth and you've heard the truth. Soon I'll be gone. So while I'm here, walk in the light so darkness doesn't overcome you and you stumble. While you have the light, walk in the light. Believe in the light so that you can become sons of the light. You've seen seen enough, you've heard enough, you know who I am. I am the Son of Man, I am the Christ. Now, choose to believe that even though I'm going down into humiliation, I will rise to greater glory. And that's true for you and me today. The days are getting darker. Christian truth is becoming rarer. The Bible is becoming more and more despised. The light is fading of a Christian culture and a biblical worldview. The door that has been opened for Christian proclamation is closing. The times of unfettered freedom of preaching the word are coming to an end. While you are close to the light and you have these moments of seeing the truth, seeing the paradox of the cross and the pain of the cross and the power of the cross and you see the nature of real glory, believe it. Receive it before the day the door closes. Here's how Spurgeon helps us understand this. He says this, This was Christ's way to glory, and it must be our way to glory too. The grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die, or else it cannot bring forth fruit. Just so must it be with you and with me. And in proportion as we learn to die to self, we shall live to the glory of God. If you keep yourself to yourself, You will lose yourself. Spurgeon says, Brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are to really glorify Christ on the earth, we must be willing to lose our reputation, our good name, our comfort, and indeed everything we have for Christ's sake. This is the only way truly to live. If for your own sake, you begin to keep back anything from Christ, that is the way to die. You would then be like the grain of wheat, which is laid by and preserved, and which therefore can never grow or multiply. Surrender yourself. Be willing to be nothing. Be willing to die if only the truth may live. Care nothing about honor and glory for yourself. Care only about the honor and glory of your master. Learn the meaning of the master's paradox. As you bury yourself, you will multiply yourself. As you are put out of sight, like a grain of wheat which is sown in the ground, you will have your only opportunity of growth and increase. Heavily laden ears of corn shall spring up from the grain which has been buried in the earth. That's His promise. I believe it. Let's pray. A living God, we praise You for paradoxes which seem to make sense of everything. Paradoxes which are at the root of all of our great stories. And so we intuitively sense their correctness. That from humility... Is true victory, that from self surrender is true victory. We sense it, but Lord Jesus, you've shown it. And yours is the ultimate and final proof of the paradox of the cross, the true humility of real glory. And Father, a choice is before us today to continue to inch towards the satanic side of selfish glory. Or to go towards the Christ-like side of humble glory. So, Lord, lay Your power upon our hearts. Lay Your persuasiveness on our hearts. And draw us, draw all men to Jesus Christ this day. We pray, Father, for the salvation of the lost. And for the growth of believers. We love You. Thank You for this truth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.